When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We've talked about inflammation a lot, and, and I hear it. I hear that word a lot on your podcast yeah, because, yeah. as we know, it drives so many disease conditions. And yeah. cardiovascular disease is definitely partly inflammatory. We know that. Mm. And the thinking is, is that this sort of reaction that your your vessel wall has to try and heal itself from this injury creates this inflammatory cascade. And rather than just having local inflammation triggers systemic inflammation in your whole cardiovascular system and that can put your blood pressure up and cause narrowing of arteries elsewhere in the body as well in other arteries not just the ones around your heart welcome to the doctor's kitchen podcast with me dr rupee where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle these are some of the things that i've written about in my new book eat to be illness which is out on the 21st of march and you'll find in it the principles of healthy eating and how to apply these to protecting our brains balancing inflammation and improving our heart which is exactly what we're talking about today I invite fellow doctor and friend, Dr. Ian Panja, who's a general practitioner, a super generalist and lifestyle medicine enthusiast. He's also co-founder of the Royal College of GPs accredited prescribing lifestyle medicine course. And we're talking about eating and lifestyle for our heart health. Now, eating for your heart as a concept is not about food like a pill, but diet is an important consideration for protecting and promoting our heart health. And it's why I ultimately believe that nutrition training is vital for all medics to grasp an understanding of, as well as the public. Now, there is a lot of evidence-based, safe dietary and lifestyle change that we as practitioners can be confident in discussing with our patients listen up because it's not just people in their 50s and 60s that need to be listening to this it's actually relevant for all generations whether you're in your 20s because looking after your heart is a lifelong process and atherosclerosis which is what you'll find out about in the podcast can start in as young as your childhood if you like this podcast give it a five-star review the show notes will be on the doctorskitchen.com and make sure you subscribe to my youtube channel where i'll be doing a lot more nutrition and cooking videos listen right to the end of the podcast and i'm going to summarize exactly what we talked about onto the pod Ian, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Rupert. It's so good to be here. Wait, I, I told you this before, but honestly, the response from our previous episode on eating for your brain was so, so good. Honestly, the, the way you communicate and uh, obviously the topic and how fascinating it was... Um, it was just brilliant. So I, I knew I had to get you back on. Oh, thank you so much. I'll pay you that fiver later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how are things going? Yeah, good. Busy, but good as always. Um, frontline general practice, uh, harder than ever, but still enjoyable. Working long hours. Um, lots of change going on in our practice, all positive, which is good. And um, yeah, just keep myself busy and trying to look after myself. Yeah, it's all good fun. Because I, I refer to you as a super GP because you really are full-time frontline coalface you know you, you see the ins and outs you do so many other things as well one of which is plm prescribing yeah. lifestyle medicine which is just going from strength to strength yes it is thank you very much for that yeah prescribing lifestyle medicine really 
brilliant uh, response and it now just has a life of its own the next one is in may which i'm looking forward to um and it's just getting gps to think broader you know and that's what i mean by super generalism just Mm. broader and broader about what causes uh non-communicable symptoms and you know what often seem like mystery illnesses can actually be helped by simple lifestyle measures exactly and i love the fact that it's a day course and you teach the foundations of lifestyle and actually you know you're not making it prescriptive for one particular thing what happens when you get people to think about the root cause of their conditions and actually educate gps and why we need to try and assess the root cause is a lot of things get better absolutely it's uh, what i call a multimodal approach you're um almost like tinkering with uh, or tightening the screws I like to sort of call it um, on something where you tighten one screw and then another one tightens itself sometimes yeah. and um, life's a bit like that you know um, we, we cover a lot of cases on the course and one of them actually the the chap had forgotten you know to enjoy himself there was nothing in his life that gave him pleasure and all he had to do was join a dad's football team and then that led to one of the dads talking to him about a particular type of diet and then that led to something else and then before you knew knew it he was feeling a lot better so you know that is the magic of lifestyle medicine but there's a lot of science to it and i think trying to put them together and help the person who sat in front of you is what we try and do on that day and i think i think we've achieved it and i think i love that aspect of unraveling the science behind uh, lifestyle because on the face of it it sounds very complementary and alternative for want of a better term however when you do try and go upstream you can affect so many downstream Uh, things that lead to better health outcomes absolutely right you know it's better to stop the ball rolling down the hill rather than sort of try and scoop it up once it's got to the bottom of the hill and that's exactly what you're what you're saying in terms of um, getting to the root cause and um, yeah I mean I I hope that that becomes a conventional part of medical training and and in medicine we call it etiology you know uh, which is the underlying cause of a disease and I sadly think that in the last hundred years or so that has been largely forgotten in medicine Mm. for lots of reasons partly because of time pressures partly because of a move towards a pharmaceutical approach and and there's nothing wrong with drugs drugs are here to stay and they're Mm. very important but there's so much you can do before going down that route yeah absolutely and as i always say you know it's nothing um exceptionally uh wild it's actually according to a lot of nice guidelines where diet and lifestyle is the first thing that we should be assessing particularly for things like cardiovascular disease which brings us nicely onto our topic today absolutely right and and, and you make a really good point in the nice guidelines for uh ischemic heart disease actually do mention lifestyle interventions first it's just that for some reason they get ignored even i didn't know they were there until mm-hmm. i looked at them uh, a couple of years ago so uh, yeah absolutely yeah, lifestyle so first food first. according to the guidelines <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> that's right yeah um so i think it's very appropriate for two frontline gps uh, in the face of increasing numbers of cardiac related diseases lifestyle related diseases, to be talking about heart um because it's something that we see day in day out it, it absolutely is and and you know neither of us are heart specialists we're not cardiologists why should we be talking about heart health it's because as i always say um, in general practice what we do is we save lives in slow motion and this is heart disease is a really really good example of this can i just repeat that saving lives in slow motion i love that concept honestly it's it's absolutely spot on Thank you very much. Yeah, and I, and I think it's just you know it, it, it's in comparison really to the kind of big heroic stories that you sometimes hear your hospital colleagues tell. And in general practice, we don't have that. It's all about nudging people and changing behaviours and hopefully preventing um, a bad outcome. I mean, heart disease is massive. One hundred and sixty thousand people die a year of it in this country. It tends to affect people more in deprived areas, and globally, it's a huge issue as well, causing about. 30% of all deaths, so just under a third. Um, so it, it's a massive issue. And I think the bit that hits home for me mostly, although it's an issue for everyone, is that in the UK, a- around 23,000 people a year die prematurely. So, mm. you know, young men and women dying of heart disease. Um, and you hear this, I hear this week in, week out, where someone at the age of 45 has just literally dropped dead Mm. because of a heart attack and that is tragic Mm. and if there's any way of preventing that then we as gps should be doing it absolutely saving lives in slow motion and uh, you know what's what's more important what's very important is um 
for a lot of people, the first symptom of heart disease is a heart attack. And then they will they will either present to uh, to myself in A and E or or, or uh, whatever with with chest pain or without chest pain as well. And that's why it's something that I think a lot of people when they start listening to this podcast might think, oh well, you know, twenties and thirties don't really have to think about this until I'm in my fifties. Actually, heart disease can uh, start where you put the foundations for a healthy heart as early as your teens. Uh, absolutely right, and um, it's you know that is the the reason it's often called the silent killer because you don't have any warning symptoms until it's too late and of course as we know sometimes you start developing something called angina and angina is where you get chest pain almost always on exertion when you're going upstairs or running or walking up a hill and um, usually but not always it tends to affect people of a, of a certain age older people generally because you would expect some kind of furring up of your arteries which is what causes the heart disease in the first place which we can certainly talk about um, but you're quite right you know heart health is something that needs prioritizing and like a lot of the topics on your podcast um, it is linked in many ways to other systems and actually the underlying causes of what drives heart disease have a lot in common with other diseases yeah absolutely and I think that's why again going back to PLM and and stuff uh, and things that you you teach other practitioners when you hit the root cause you're actually improving the outcomes of a, a plethora of different conditions one of which is heart disease absolutely right and in many ways you, you mentioned the um uh, the brain episode and uh, your kind words you know which i i, I really uh, thank you for Not my words. <laughs> the listeners. oh that's brilliant that's brilliant um you know i'm touched by that but but actually we could almost play that podcast again yeah. it would almost it would almost be relevant to heart disease there are some subtle differences obviously because they're different conditions but the principles are very similar well that, that, i'm glad you said that because in my new book eat to be illness um yeah. i basically take the, the I, I the method or the thinking behind uh, me writing the book was to zoom in in different conditions and look at the intersection of nutrition and lifestyle on that particular condition trying to pull out all the different scientific articles of which there are many on different subjects so skin health inflammation balance uh supporting your immune system and the final chapter is zooming out and when you zoom out everything is very very intertwined and there are so many ways in which we as gps because we see patients in and out it's very easy for us to see the interconnectedness of our body and we can't treat things in silos or actually when you look at the body as a holistic system you can actually improve a whole bunch of things by doing some simple principles that everyone can apply that sounds amazing and i love the concept of it i can't wait to read it actually because i i think you're right you know you do need organ specific um, elements but ultimately that zooming out is is something that often we don't do in medicine and um, and that gives you the bigger picture doesn't it where everything connects up amazing I love it <laughs> <laughs> so atherosclerosis which is essentially uh, narrow inflamed arteries um, I suppose is a very succinct way of talking about it is the commonest or one of the commonest causes behind heart disease we're largely going to be talking about atherosclerosis and, and ischemic heart disease um, let's talk a little bit about the background so your heart is encased in a crown of vessels called the coronaries and and this industrious machine that hopefully never stops throughout our whole lifetime will supply the muscles and the cells of your heart with oxygen and nutrients and the furring up of those uh, arteries is responsible for some of the symptoms that we've talked about angina chest pain and heart attack that, that's exactly right you know you, you're quite right that your heart beats 30 to 40 million times a year and if, if anyone out there wants to kind of feel what your heart does if you just open and close your hand once a second for about 20 times you'll realize that you get exhausted after about 20 or 30 seconds and we're all think, doing this uh, <laughs> in the studio now um, yeah. and uh, you know that's what your heart has to do for its for your lifetime um i think we, we've talked about a bit about the scale of the problem which is huge um atherosclerosis as you say means furring up of those coronary arteries so there are four main arteries that supply the heart itself with blood which which seems strange because the heart supplies everything else with blood but it it itself needs a supply of blood and the way that atherosclerosis starts is with really an injury to the wall of the blood vessels within you know around the heart so the inside wall you know imagine sort of a, a, a piece of tubing uh, with sort of a rubber layer inside like you know copper piping with some rubber inside and that rubber layer on the inside is 
what's called your endothelium and sort of the inner lining of your blood vessel. Now, why does that injury occur? Lots of reasons. High blood pressure will cause it. Smoking will cause it. High levels of cholesterol and another type of fat called triglycerides can cause it. Um, pollutants can cause it. So we know, for example, if you live in a part of the world like Hong Kong, for example, where there's enormous amounts of particulate matter or pollution in the air, rates of heart disease and respiratory disease are much higher there. So, so it starts with this endothelial injury. And what the body does, and this is something that's only been discovered really more in recent years, because there are lots of theories on heart disease, and, mm. and we'll talk a bit later about fats and the like. Mm. But your body responds by trying to repair that injury. And it forms the second phase of that is it that it forms something called a plaque which is made up of fat cholesterol and calcium and all sorts of other bits and that plaque can just stay there or if you're very unlucky it can become unstable and break off and then you're in real trouble because either the blood vessel bursts or that plaque goes and dislodges itself and then blocks the artery completely and that is what happens when you have a heart attack um when the plaque actually bursts the blood vessels, um, that is almost always fatal. It's um, mm. a lot of um, um, cardiologists back in the day used to call it the widow maker. Mm. You know, the, this plaque that is just waiting there and often kills younger men. Mm. Obviously, women die of it too, but but actually, stereotypically, men get heart disease more more often than women. Mm. Um, so that's sort of the mechanism of atherosclerosis and how it develops. And then what drives that is. Um, a number of factors really so we've talked about inflammation a lot and, and i hear it i hear that word a lot on your podcast <laughs> yeah, because yeah. as we know it drives so many disease conditions and yeah. cardiovascular disease is definitely partly inflammatory we know that mm. and the thinking is is that this sort of reaction that your your vessel wall has to try and heal itself from this injury creates this inflammatory cascade and rather than just having local inflammation triggers systemic inflammation in your whole cardiovascular system and that can put your blood pressure up and cause narrowing of arteries elsewhere in the body as well in other arteries not just the ones around your heart so so that's really how heart disease progresses yeah and i i from early understanding i think we used to think it was simply a cholesterol problem that was largely related to plumbing so essentially clogging up arteries with this waxy substance that limits blood flow distal to where the blockage is and now we understand from your beautiful explanation about um, the cascade of inflammation the uh, introduction or the, the um, expression of uh, pro-inflammatory proteins from uh, oxidizing LDL particles yeah. that you find in cells uh, as well as <coughs> macrophages and it's caused this like this explosion of different uh, inflammatory particulates and, and that will uh, cause this um, uh, thrombosis and, and a heart attack unfortunately in a lot of cases. Yeah that's right I mean, you, you're absolutely right so that you get the formation of foam cells and then you end up with something called a fatty streak and what you were saying about LDL so LDL is low density lipoprotein it's effectively what is colloquially known as bad cholesterol why is it known as bad cholesterol because it sticks to the side walls of your blood vessels and can encourage that endothelial injury i have to say at this point not all ldl cholesterol is bad mm. but most of it is um and and you're quite right when when that process happens th you mentioned um free radicals no you probably didn't actually I've probably heard that in my head but free radicals um and oxidative stress so so yeah. these are basically um you know molecules that steal electrons from others and that oxidizing effect of the cholesterol causes inflammation so this process called oxidative stress leads to inflammation and that fuels that cascade and it becomes systemic yeah i think that's a really important point about uh, ldl being very important actually so ldl essentially is a lipoprotein so it carries cholesterol around the body and one of the things that we don't actually realize i think and and um uh in a lot of cases is LDL is involved in reverse cholesterol transport so it actually brings cholesterol away from the body back into the liver where it can be repackaged yeah. and we thought that was primarily the, uh, the HDL, HDL. Mm. Um, so LDL does 
definitely have an important role in cholesterol homeostasis. It's when it becomes oxidized. It's when you have this uh, picture of inflammation. And because LDL can impact the cell walls, particularly the endothelium as well, causing this cascade mm. of inflammation and, and ultimately a, a blockage, um, it gets a bad rap. Um, so it's important that you know we look at both merits of, of LDL and HDL. Yeah, a- absolutely right. And I think, um, and that's part of the, the issue, just going off on a tangent, you know, people listening who may have had their cholesterol checked at the doctor's surgery um, nowadays we tend to give people a split don't we in terms mm-hmm. of oh you've got your, your LDLs have gone up and your HDLs have gone down and I, I th- is that valid yes I, th- I think it is because it gives you sort of a as, as good a measure as we can get you know unless you've actually sort of you know tunnel into your blood vessels with a microscope and have a look you're not going to get um, a much better measure than that mm. and and sometimes you see as you know when people improve their dietary habits or they sleep better um, those parameters move yeah. and I've definitely noticed that in my patients where their triglycerides drop and actually yeah. their LDL HDL profile improves so so um, so cholesterol is is important I think you're quite right it used to just all be about cholesterol yeah. and I, I think the thinking has changed there yeah. um, it's a factor but it's certainly not the be all and end all. I think as NHS GPs in particular um, we're sort of bound by having quite a very basic cholesterol profile as well and we have to do the best that we can with the the biomarkers available to us in the healthcare system there's a lot of talk around LP little a um, uh, other markers of inflammation as well uh, things like homer and insulin resistance yeah. I mean we'll probably get on to talk about cardiometabolic disease in, in its entirety um, but from what we have yeah I, I think I tend to look at triglycerides and uh, ratios a lot more yeah, absolutely, and and it's um it, it you're right. You've got to really again. It goes back to looking at the whole person and whether they've got any other kind of inflammatory conditions, what their family history is like, um, what their habits are like, and and trying to risk assess really. Mm-hmm. Um, what's difficult is if you if you've got the plaque because that is completely silent, yeah. and, and those are things that just occur um, randomly. I mean, recently there was, a, there was, again, going sort of off on a tangent, yeah, there, yeah. Was, um, um, there was a publication talking about P. gingivalis, which is this bacteria yeah. that you get in your mouth, and, and we've known for years that there has been this link between having inflamed gums or gum disease mm-hmm. and heart disease, and now that, that link seems a bit stronger. Again, the mechanism there is inflammation, inflammation yeah, yeah. It's, it's the common theme so um and, and and unsurprisingly when we get on to talking about foods in a minute you know most of the foods that help you know heart health are you know anti-inflammatory foods aren't yeah they? so exactly yeah. yeah and i love the way like you know I, I think it's very difficult for the listener to understand the nuance in this whole subject because whilst there are certain diets out there that prove or or claim to you know reduce inflammation and that's the reason and that's sort of like you know exactly why food can be medicinal in its effect it's very very uh, binary and you actually have to look at the holistic perspective of of how your body works it's not all to do with inflammation although inflammation is clearly a very important part there are so many other things that we need to cover yeah absolutely and and it's um you know it's that whole thing isn't it so uh, again just thinking of groups of people that um are more likely to develop heart disease so shift workers people mm. who work nights now you know I, i've had so many patients over the years that that have that pattern of work and i have to say they are much more likely to develop diabetes and they're mm. much more likely to develop ischemic heart disease why is that well it's because their natural circadian rhythms are disrupted and that affects things like their hormones, their stress hormones like cortisol. Um, and, you know, they're not unhealthy people. It's just that they've, you know, worked a job that has meant that they've had to work nights. And it includes people in healthcare, yeah. you know, working shifts. Um, and so, so you're quite right. It's not just one thing. It's, it's a combination of a lot, a lot of factors. Yeah. I, I, I always find that fact quite startling that NHS shift workers or those who work in the NHS who do shift workers are much more likely to suffer from heart disease, depression, a whole plethora of other conditions. And it is because of this disruption to our circadian rhythm under which everything is on this control, it's on this clock. So whether it be your pancreas, your stomach cells, your brain cells, everything operates on this clock. And when we disrupt it through regular sort of shift work, it's no wonder you see 
complete disruption to your inflammatory cascade, complete disruption to your satiety hormones and, and why, even if they're not unhealthy, they have poorer health outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's just by, by virtue of shifting one variable, which is the timing of timing of their day effectively you know mm. that it's back to front so um no absolutely right yeah and 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 again just sh- goes to show that you know it isn't just one thing you know it's a mixture of of so many factors you know sleep stress diet exercise genes your environment you mm. know all of those things yeah i was just on my uh, obesity um, module for my masters in uh, nutritional medicine and they were talking yeah. about shift workers in particular and when you do eat later uh, and this i think would probably apply to a lot of people who tend to eat later in the night your uh, response in terms of uh, your sugar levels in your blood will maintain their elevation for a longer period of time uh, because of that disruption to when you're general when you're when we're evolutionary designed to eat which is during daylight hours and so you just see this like incredible peak and just continuing in that glucose that that sugar level in the blood that's just maintained overnight and you combine that with the fact that your liver will pump out fats during the evening as well or it, over when you're sleeping because that's when um, uh, lipogenesis occurs um, you can understand this sort of storm uh, of of high sugar and then and fats yeah. and then causing that oxidative uh, stress and then and then causing the damage to the endothelium yeah absolutely you know and that's a really good illustration of of what happens you know um and I, i've just um you've just reminded me actually i mean that, that oxidative stress and what happens with free radicals um and we'll probably come on to talk about you know oils and fats in in, in a while but but actually um it, the way the way best way to think about it is thinking of something going rancid you know like oils actually mm. you know that, that you should shouldn't really leave them out um and you should sort of put them away and make sure that they're stored properly because mm. actually when they mix with the air the oxygen they go rancid so you've got to sort of imagine these free radicals these pollutants trying to steal electrons and what what gives them gives them that is a combination of bad things so you're quite right eating late you know especially eating sugary foods, will raise your blood sugar and create an environment where that's much more likely to happen. You know, and we all do it. You know, I, I'd say I do that twice a week because it's just the way it is. And I think, oh, no, this is really bad. But, but you know, I don't sleep as well as a result and I feel more tired the next day. So your body sort of tells you in a way that yeah. you're not doing the right thing. In fact, that's exactly what I did last night. So I was at uh, a friend of ours, uh, book launch, Anita's, um, The Gynae Geek, is a fantastic book. Um, and I got back late from that and I couldn't eat until like 10.30 or something like that. Yeah. I knew I had to eat. And I and I woke up this morning after having what I thought was eight hours sleep mm. and I, I felt knackered, absolutely <laughs> knackered. Yeah. And I know it was because I ate really late. Um, you're, so just worried, just, you're just worried she's going to sell more books than you, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I hope she does. It's a fantastic book. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So I think that's it's a very important point. I think sleep is is again it's one of those things that we don't really talk about as much as we should do as general practitioners because it is one of the most important anti-inflammatory tools that we have in our clinical toolbox of things that we can do to prevent and improve heart outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? Sort yeah. of 30 years ago, like all the doctors prescribed sleep. sleep yeah. um, but it is something that we take for granted. And actually, you know, earlier today, I, I, I was lecturing at the London School of um hygiene and tropical medicine and to, to a, a bunch of msc students uh, who are doing global health nutrition but the lecture wasn't about that it was more about lifestyle and um one of the one of the students put their hand up and said well you know don't you think you're just over medicalizing things like stress and sleep you know we've always had those and i just went well no because <laughs> people come in complaining of those things a lot more look yeah. at what's happening you know on the planet non-communicable disease including heart disease is on the rise mm-hmm. so and it's not just because people are living longer um so I, I sort of gave a slightly short shrift in a way because i don't think we are over medicalizing it we're actually acknowledging that it's a problem and it has real consequences in terms of disease yeah and i think that's where your frontline nhs work comes into play there because even though it is anecdotal you do uh, appreciate the increase in the number of people who are suffering with stress 
uh, overburden with with work and then you combine that with the increased use of social media not to say that's the overall explanation as to why we're suffering with poor sleep but again you can create this this torrential storm of of practices that will generally reduce our our sleep and have impacts on yeah. on our well-being absolutely and sometimes you see these clinical conundrums you know i had um a slim fit chap come in to see me who's HbA1c which is the sort of old name for the blood test that we do for diabetes was raised so he wasn't quite diabetic but he was almost mm. and he's very healthy and he was actually quite sort of puzzled by this and went on a low carbohydrate diet which we know now really beyond all doubt benefits people who are pre-diabetic or or newly diagnosed as diabetic mm. um and it didn't really move <clears throat> and the reason was his job and his life um, is such that he's got a very stressful job. Stress levels are incredibly high and his sleep is poor. He goes to bed very late. And actually just by addressing those two things and being a bit more boundaried at work, getting to bed earlier, his HbA1c has come down significantly, you know, well below six, where it was always sort of between 6.2 and 6.5. And, and that's nothing to do with diet or food. Mm. That is sort of the other bits, because actually he, this chap eats healthily. Yeah. Um, so again, it, it illustrates that point of everything being multimodal and looking at everything um, and and tightening up the screws as much as you can. Yeah, and when you look at the pathophysiology behind stress and what mental stress and, and burden causes in your bodies, you know, we're looking at higher rates of cortisol, uh, relative insulin resistance as a result of that insulin being an anabolic hormone so you're having raised levels of insulin and that can actually hinder your body's ability to uh, lose weight and and uh, control your glucose so glucose homeostasis the, the state at which your body keeps uh, sugar in tight control in your blood is uh, disrupted so you can understand why someone's HbA1c just doesn't seem to move despite eating a very good diet yeah absolutely right and and, and insulin for you know is, is responsible for a lot isn't it mm. you know yeah <laughs> it lays yeah. it lays down fat it drives you know inflammation and it effectively because it's anabolic it sort of makes cells kind of overdo stuff in a way and uh, you know overgrowth of cells and, and kind of you know you don't want too much of it hanging around and of course every time you eat anything late or anything sugary you're going to get a sugar spike followed by an insulin spike and that you know that's something that i think we can all learn from and drives not just diabetes but heart disease but i think the point about the the slim chap going back to that was he, he was very well read and knew that as a diabetic if he did become diabetic his risk of heart disease would go up sixfold um and couldn't really understand why why he was going in that direction mm. um and of course you know one of the reasons that's the case in terms of an increased risk of diabetes is because we now see cardiovascular disease and diabetes as almost two sides to one condition mm. um often used to be called syndrome x or metabolic syndrome yeah. um and so the risk factors are really very similar and yeah. again it, the, the common link is is inflammation stress hormones all of those things we've just talked about yeah and you see like one of the most powerful ways in which we can uh, address those those different uh, issues that lead to heart disease is with lifestyle and whether that be through stress relieving techniques, whether it be from uh, sleep optimization, uh, and whether it be for improving your diet, one that's essentially more Mediterranean and the focus on vegetables and, and quality fats, um, you can have really powerful effects that are things that we need to address before pharmaceuticals or at least mm. alongside. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think I'd like to just mention Dean Ornish's work here, actually, yeah. because he, he is um, an absolute trailblazer and for for 30 years or so he's been doing this and it's been published in big journals you know mm. the american journals where he has taken someone who's got established heart disease so they have an angiogram and they've actually got atheroma they've got atherosclerosis and it's very very narrow and this person's on the brink of having a heart attack and has probably almost certainly got angina that chest pain symptom one year on dean's program which involves a mainly vegetarian diet um, in fact, it is vegetarian diet, mm. um, mindfulness, yoga, stress reduction. And you do the angiogram again, that blockage has gone. So it actually reverses heart disease. Now, now there's not many people, 
you know, if that, that was me, I'd be telling the world about it. I think Dean <laughs> has told the world about yeah, it. But yeah. um, that is a, a very, very impressive thing to to to, to witness. And and actually, m- most having having met Dean and asked him about this, most of his patients tend to be men. They tend to be high stress characters who are Type A. And if you take someone like that, and you know, we're sitting here in the Shard, aren't we? Mm. Um, and if you go to one of the corporate lawyers offices upstairs i'm sure a lot of a lot of the people who work there live on coffee nothing wrong with coffee but if you're drinking sort of eight or ten cups a day that will put your blood pressure up it will cause vasoconstriction you know your blood vessels will get tighter it will raise your heart rate and put more stress on your cardiovascular system um but on on the dean program you know imagine you know you're doing mindfulness and yoga you're doing exactly the opposite you're activating your parasympathetic nervous system the opposite of what you know lawyers and coffee that sort of stereotype sorry Mm. to use that but you know (laughs) it's just because we're here um (laughs) and you can see how it works you know Mm. it's very simple you know and 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 vegetables as we know plant-based diets loads of benefits there um so in a way now i'm 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 not i'm in a way sort of less impressed because i know the science a bit better but i'm even more impressed that he did it back then yeah I mean, you know absolutely amazing i remember coming across some of his papers and he was like late late 90s and he was uh looking at improving the expression of genes using some elegant gene mapping models in telomere length wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah telomere right. exactly mm. yeah um on a low grade prostate cancer sufferers as well and putting one control group onto the normal sort of standard treatment others on his what was a modified version of his program uh, and just demonstrating the improvements it's like this is something that really has powerful effects and this is something we should all be taking note of and now that ornish program that you're referring to i believe is prescribable and covered on american health insurers as well and i i can imagine that just growing uh, in the future um because and and it's kind of like putting all the dots together right like i'm fascinated by the um research studies looking at when you take a group of people and you take them to a, a meditation retreat and you measure their telomeres before and after yes you've done so many different things you probably changed their diet you probably you know taken them completely out of their stressful uh, uh, environments you've made them sleep better but their telomeres increased in length in some of them it was incredible so you know this has a literal anti-aging effect in terms of biological measures this is really medicine <laughs> and yeah. you, you know you you take that element of that study and then you mix it with some vegetarian food of which you've got lots of evidence from the mediterranean diet you supplement perhaps with omega-3 that you can't get from other sources and you know you and you put them in an exercise problem you're doing so many different things like uh, in in unison it's should be expected that you're going to have these dramatic effects and i think the more people realize just how powerful this stuff is the better we will have uh, an appreciation for lifestyle medicine yeah absolutely yeah and it's it's getting that message out there because i think people like dean were probably seen as mavericks in his day very much so and it's now become much more mainstream and so we, we should be celebrating that kind of work because it's it's low risk it works and you know people feel better and they're going to live longer yeah i was really lucky actually i haven't met him properly um i've said hi uh, at some conferences but he he did a a, a session at a, a conference that i was at and he ended the session with this beautiful meditation uh for about 10 minutes i think it was and i remember just feeling i've done a few meditations like that in conferences before but i think because it was him directing it he's just he's obviously done it so many different times it was just such a pleasure to even be in the audience you know he's got this real calming effect hopefully one day i'll get there yeah yeah you're you're, you're there mate you're there (laughs) yeah so um obesity is quite quite a loaded term these days people don't like the word obesity um essentially it's excess adipose tissue that we find around our organs visceral fat uh and subcutaneously as well which is the fat that we can see the most dangerous type is in your patient that it seems to be slim uh but has got a lot of fat around their organs and, and it's something that we refer to now quite colloquially as tofi thin in the outside fat in the inside yeah. um and that's particularly worrying because we have these specialized types of um uh proteins adipokines and these are pro-inflammatory again it comes back to inflammation every time but they are very pro-inflammatory and they can lead us or 
put, put us in a um, more risk of having that inflammation cascade that leads to furring up of the arteries. And despite you know fat being around the organs and causing this uh, sort of metabolically active fat that leads to inflammation, the concept of us eating fat and causing that fat is not true. That's right. And, and it, it is very confusing because, and it starts with cholesterol, I think, because eggs, for example, contain cholesterol, but eating eggs won't necessarily raise your blood cholesterol because there's a whole process of fats, you know, you know how proteins and, and how, how food gets broken down and then how fats reconstitute themselves in in your system and actually um there's no there's no blame here in terms of what what drives this because it's as we've just talked about there are so many factors but mm. um if anything your insulin response is probably more responsible um for the fats in your blood than actual fats that you eat there, there are good and bad fats though i mean we've got to sort of separate them out yeah. a little bit in that um so one fat that i think you know it doesn't matter which camp you're in because because this is one of those areas that's debated it's on a daily basis isn't it, in, in, in the yeah. press and on twitter and stuff um so trans fats are really bad and and trans fats essentially um the food industry uh, kind of came up with these because they're fats that you don't have to um renew very often so you know if you're sort of on the end of uh, you know you're at the seaside and you're at the pier and you have the deep fried donuts i would worry that they're cooked in trans fats or if you're looking at labels uh, it would often say hydrogenated fats and they're things that should be avoided because they lead to that oxidative stress and they tend to attract all the bad molecules that will damage the the lining of your heart um vessels you know like we talked about at the beginning um so so they're best avoided um sh- you know sticking sticking with fats i guess i guess the you know moving to the other extreme the two sort of groups of fats that really benefit the heart and again there are studies on this um you know extra virgin olive oil definitely and anything that's rich in omega-3 which you know you tend to get really from from oily fish Mm. you know and and i think most people out there know this um and it's just being mindful that those things are important not not just for your heart but also um you know for your brain and 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 just cellular function uh, it's really important to make sure that you 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 get some of that i think in the traditional western diet we don't get enough omega-3 mm. fats you know it tends to be very sort of heavy on something called omega-6 because because more foods are rich in those um so you do sometimes have to make an extra effort to make sure that you're getting enough um and as i say if you're you know if and if you you said earlier on actually if you if you're vegetarian you might even consider supplementing Mm, um but so so yeah so that that, there is those are my only kind of i guess red lines when it comes to fats you know trans fats definitely not more extra extra virgin olive oil should be just sort of put on everything you know yeah. in our house it just it's, it's sort of we must drink it um <laughs> well that's and, essentially and what they did in their pretty med studies right uh, with their, either a handful of nuts or supplemented with extra virgin olive oil and they found better um yeah outcomes absolutely absolutely right yeah you know and, and nuts again tend to contain healthy fats so um and so I think in that study they had a control group with a sort of a normal in inverted commas diet. Then they had a group with extra virgin olive oil, and they had a group with nuts as mm. well. And both the nut and the extra virgin olive oil group, Did when better. they looked ten years down the line, mm. had much better outcomes, statistically significant outcomes mm. in terms of heart disease. So that that should be quite a strong a strong message, I think. Yeah. I, I- just to know, uh, I'm aware that the ProDemed study was retracted and then resubmitted two weeks later by the same researchers. Yeah. Um, so they, it probably hasn't had the uh, independent verification that it probably warrants being such a huge study. Um, but I think the uh, results of the ProDemed have been replicated in other studies of a similar nature. So And it, and it just goes to show a lot of the stuff that we know about polyunsaturated fatty acids when they're added to the diet, or monos as well, sorry, mm. um, in the form of uh, extra virgin olive oil and, and nuts and stuff and I think these are I think these are really good concepts to get across because we can get really polarising and quite aggressive arguments about sat fat versus unsaturated fat where you should get really what people want to know is where should they be getting their fats from and I think you can't really go far wrong by looking at the whole sources of fats from nuts, seeds and extra virgin olive oil yeah I, I agree and it's sort of you know I, I remember looking at um, 
it wasn't a, a scientific paper. It was one of those websites that summarises the latest in, in dietary studies. And it sort of said, um, study of all studies looks <laughs> at every diet on the planet. And it said, you know, what's the verdict? Um, eat real food. Yeah. You know, and, and sort of, and, and there, there is something in that, you know. And if you're, if you're not eating something that is, you know, art, you know, fried foods, bad in general you know again that's a bit of a red line you know if you're the oils become rancid and and they cause damage you know you've got to think about you know what you're eating a, a little bit but if you're eating something that is not tampered with it's very likely to be doing your body good you know irrespective of good or bad fats you mm. know i think that's a good rule of thumb really absolutely yeah i you tend to employ the 80 20 or the probably the 85 15 rule of um just eating largely uh, unprocessed foods but every now and then love a donut <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, know Actually, I was in Bologna recently and I had the most amazing croissant stuff. I shouldn't be saying this in a hot, <laughs> in a hot podcast, <laughs> but I had the most amazing croissant with like a Nutella filling. Oh, mate. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's sort of, you know, it is about balance, you know, and, and you've got to, you know, the pleasure that you got from that is 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 worth it and i think you know we're all I'm talking human. about it three months later <laughs> <laughs> you're all human you know and you can't sort of you can't you can't um yeah 80 20 is good i think yeah, yeah definitely yeah, yeah. and it, yeah. that actually brings me on to this concept of relying on individual biomarkers to try and um determine risk and, and then assess risk like we, we we talked a bit about cholesterol and stuff and if you direct your resources towards removing sort of cholesterol or just tackling that then you do uh lose that overall sort of mechanism behind what was the root cause of that in the first place and i think you know against the stuff that you do in plm when you when you look at lifestyle interventions you have a better chance at actually assessing the risk that results in heart disease in its entirety yeah absolutely and it's always always best to look at underlying causes what, what's difficult here is that um you're trying to look for underlying causes for something that hasn't happened if you're trying to prevent something mm. and that that is difficult because all you've got are you know like you say blood results nhs blood results and sometimes you can measure other things like we mentioned something called high sensitivity crp mm. which is a general marker of uh, inflammation particularly associated with cardiovascular health homocysteine that's a type of protein that sometimes builds up in the blood and makes the blood thicker um, but again not routinely available in nhs tests um, and also you know i would i would say fasting insulin is something that's worth looking at you know partly because it picks up people who are pre-diabetic much quicker and more effectively than an hba1c and and you know blood sugar control is is key in this why is that because it's a risk factor for diabetes but it also you know if your blood sugar's haywire because of your insulin response that will drive inflammation so you know the the, the guy that eats your tasty croissant all the time you know every yeah. day three or four times a day is in big trouble you yeah. know um because they're going to get that yo-yoing and that will lay down the kind of fat that causes heart disease with mm. those insulin spikes um so i think yeah you, you know th there are other biomarkers uh, you know th there's yeah. um there's something called apob which is also a, a type of fat particle and again in some specialized tests they look at the numbers of that to be more of a uh, you know an indicator of risk but these are these are difficult things to to, mm. to measure conventionally um and i think you just do what you can absolutely i think you know your point about fasting insulin is really important because our body is incredible at keeping that sugar level in a tight window um, and it will increase and pump out insulin to respond to those increases in glucose that we ingest. And so it will essentially hide from being detected by an HbA1c or a simple glucose measurement um, for a long time before it actually results in something like pre or diabetes type 2 in, in its entirety. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, th I think also there's, you know, I think it, it would be, you know, disingenuous not to mention drugs at this point as mm. well because statins come up a lot don't they it's one yeah. of the most common topics i think in health um if you look at any of the newspapers and um and there's there's again it there's a polarizing kind of argument about you know there's the anti-statin camp isn't there and you know i prescribe statins routinely um on repeat prescription because a lot of my patients are on them and is you know am i pro or against statins well you know actually if you if you look at the studies on statins and physically what they do 
to atherosclerotic deposits um, they do reverse them to some degree but balancing against that is the side effects that they give you mm. and also how many people do you have to treat with a statin to actually save one person from a heart attack and those numbers which are called numbers needed to treat are not so good so the numbers needed to treat for a mediterranean diet in terms of keeping people healthy is very low it's actually seven so mm. if you get if you make seven people eat a mediterranean diet you will save one person from having a heart attack but actually for statins it's much much higher it's anything between 60 and 100 mm. so you know it, it, it's not so clear cut mm. um and it's difficult to sort of get that risk across to the patient when they're in front of you in terms of you know should i take a statin or not once you've had an event obviously and you go into hospital you come out on a very high dose of a statin yeah. because um you know quite rightly a cardiologist or a, a doctor in the hospital will do everything they can to prevent you from having another one so i think it's it, you know i'm not in that camp that says no one should ever have a statin mm because I, I think that's short-sighted but um but if possible and if you can do it through lifestyle then then you should absolutely i i'm glad you raised that point because i think a, a lot of people like to again make it a very clear-cut decision and make it black and white between using statins and not using or or you know our statin is good or our statin is bad and as you've rightly painted the picture it depends on that person in front of you it depends on their motivation to want to even consider other ways in which they can control their cholesterol at, um, and, and cardiovascular risk and also whether they've had an event as well or whether they've got a family uh, risk uh, of, of high propensity of, of heart disease and I think um, those are sort of important considerations and that's why the question of whether statins are good or bad or whether we share having them is um, it's not the correct question to ask the question to ask is is it right for my patient or is it right for me exactly mm, exactly right and that brings us, I suppose, to... Sh I mean, we've talked about sugar, but sugar is a really, you know, uh, it's very popular at the moment, probably more so than fat, I would say. Yeah, there's yeah. always one or the other, isn't yeah. there? <laughs> yeah. Fat or yeah. sugar, yeah. I think we've gone up and down, haven't we, over the last few years about whether sugar is important. I mean, it's as, in, as important. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I think I learned about over the last few years is this uh, ages or advanced glycemic M products um, that have a role in a whole plethora of different diseases, you know, obviously diabetes but also uh, as a mechanism for causing the issues that surround diabetes issues affecting your kidneys issues affecting your eyes and stuff but particularly with heart disease um, these ages are, are quite important yeah i mean i think i think when it comes to sugar um it's very simple in the, the way that i see it so apart from when you're having your treats um if you have natural sugars like from blueberries or from oranges or bananas and you know the two latter fruits bananas and oranges can be quite high in sugar but um you know fruits also contain fiber and fiber actually helps you manage your sugars a lot better in terms of your blood sugar so you know a mars bar and a banana have probably about the same amount of sugar in terms of the number of grams but which one is going to you know you know all things being equal with your gut microbiome but you know which one's going to spike your sugar more mm. the mars bar because mm. it doesn't have the fiber that the banana does so as a very very dull kind of rule of thumb you know natural sugars sort of not so bad you know artificial sugars in processed foods probably quite bad you know yeah. and um and you know i i don't always follow that myself I, I i like a bit of dark chocolate i might even have some milk chocolate now and again you know but but it's um and that's a treat it's okay but it shouldn't just be a regular part of what you do you know um because that would be bad so it's sort of it's it's thinking about the source of sugar really again it's that you know food first type thing thinking about you know what's natural and and what comes you know out of the earth if you like um, you know those things are much less likely to be harmful i love looking uh, into the science behind the structure of what you find in natural food so apple for example um you know it, it is uh, technically a high sugar food if you look just at the sugar content the fructose you yeah. find there however when you look at the fibers in it it causes it creates this almost like matrix effect 
on the inner lining of your gut and that actually limits the sugar response that you have in your blood obviously patient to patient that can be quite different uh, and actually i'm really excited about continuous glucose monitoring now because you can actually give personalized information on the basis of what the sugar response is to certain foods to that patient but basically what happens with you know natural high fiber foods that are also high sugar is that you it blunts that sugar response because of this matrix effect. it's almost like you know giving an extra barrier uh for your for your gut um as well as obviously the benefits of having a varied uh, amounts of, of different fibres and what I'm noticing actually in um, uh, healthy bars uh, in quote unquote um, is that they're adding fibre to the bars themselves and they can you know make a claim and it's got added fibre it's got 10 grams of fibre but what they usually add is just one type of fibre and that doesn't have the same blunting effect and it doesn't have the same benefits to the microbiota either so I think that's a good rule of thumb you know just having uh, natural sources of uh, of sugars uh, uh, which already have those fibres in them yeah yeah uh, absolutely and you know it, it's it's a case of um, the, the, you know it, 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 it's, it's really difficult I think isn't it because if you're constantly going around worrying about what you're eating yeah. and, and, and my, my, my sort of hack for myself is just having um, things to hand mm. that are going to nourish you. So as long as you're not allergic to any of these things, my ones are nuts and berries and olives. Those three things are all heart healthy foods mm. and they're quite satisfying, you know. Okay, now and again, I just I fancy some chocolate, which is you know. But most of the time, if you're grazing on those things, um, you will feel full, and actually they're doing your body some good, you know. And they've got the right kind of oils, the right kind of fats, and you know berries, for example, as we talked, I think on the brain podcast, mm. they they work in several ways. They're full of antioxidants, mm. which, in theory, although the evidence on antioxidants isn't fantastic to be yeah. honest, but in theory mm. they stop that free radical activity and that oxidative stress they also work directly on the gut in terms of the gut microbiome um and and they're fibrous so you know you're, you're getting a, a whole load of benefits um and they're quite sweet you know yeah they, yeah they taste good so, yeah <laughs> this is what i love about the science behind food because it's never black and white it's never one thing or the other it's just this continuous shade of grey and like you know you look at like just one thing like berries for example or a type of high fibre food you get the the polyphenols let's say from dark green leafy uh, dark leafy greens mm. you get the polyphenols you get the anti-inflammatory phytochemicals things like sulfurophenol indole 3 carbonate you get the fibre and you look at what the fibre does and the fibre will increase short chain fatty acid production in your gut what does that do well it nourishes your colonocyte and what does that do well it increases um, anti-inflammatory effect and it dampens your immune system what does that have an effect on well that mm. has a downstream effect on the impact of endothelial damage and thus lowering your risk of cardiovascular disease it's incredible i mean that's just one pathway you know if you look at the direct uh, antioxidants for example the antioxidants that you find in berries will have that dampening effect on reactive oxygen species again yeah. lowering your risk of inflammation lowering your risk of cardiovascular disease and it's it's really important that you uh, point you made about antioxidants in general because i think when they're supplemented in high amounts synthetically mm. they tend to have the opposite effect and i find this absolutely fascinating because antioxidants themselves or oxidation itself is very important for cell signaling it's very important to have this almost adaptive response that mm. is ingrained in how your body functions yeah. and when we try and disrupt that by you know giving too much of a good thing it can have the opposite effect yeah yeah absolutely I, and it, it is bizarre because i've looked at these studies as well um in fact i've got one here with mm. me which i printed off it's called oxidative stress and inflammation in heart disease do antioxidants have a role in treatment and or prevention and it's from um where is it from it's from hawaii actually from 2011 but it's a review article so it looks at um previous studies and actually it's not not great and as you yeah. say it's in synthetic ones don't seem to confer that benefit so yeah. again it's that it's food first isn't yeah, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it really a, is. it's like the same ones like um so <clears throat> as part of my one of my modules on phytoprotectants we were looking at supplementation of resveratrol resveratrol mm. is a phytochemical that you find in uh things like um grape skins yeah. uh wine, red wine yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you'd yeah. have to drink 60 yeah, liters a week exactly yeah sounds good to me no. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then when you look at when people take it from whole foods mm. you see a, a, a suggestive um, cardioprotective effect when you see you take 
higher amounts mm. of the same chemical in a supplement form, you don't see the same effect. And then it further, I mean, it's very perplexing, but then you, you, you examine it, and what happens when you have it from red wine, for example, or dried grape skins, is that there are multiple different metabolites that are created as a result of digestion from your um, colonic uh, microbiota. Uh, and that leads to a whole bunch of other effects that you can measure in your urinary metabolites of resveratrol. So it might not be the resveratrol that you find in one singular form. It might be the 20 or 30 other forms that you find. Yeah. And that is why it comes down to a whole food first approach for me all the time. And that's why I think, you know, supplements for certain people, they might be beneficial. Some nutraceuticals may be beneficial for mm. certain people. Um, I'm very interested in sulforaphane. Uh, I don't know if you've come across those in China. They've been using them to sort of increase the um, uh, excretion of environmental pollutants uh, in the urine, actually, um, things like benzene and stuff like that. I think there are uses, but food-first approach wins every time. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think uh, when it comes to our toolkit, you know, we've talked a bit about um, you know, improving lifestyle practices, uh, the fact that uh, quality fats are very important from the perspective of heart health, um, and I think stress as well, something that we don't really talk about too much. And, and actually, you know, at the end of the chapter, I've written on uh, eating for your heart. I've done a whole section on the evidence base behind mindfulness, uh, movement, obviously, for cardiovascular disease, um, and sleep optimization. And I, I think, you know, um, what you're doing in PLM and, and what you're trying to do to educate more GPs to have these sort of gentle nudges, fantastic. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And it's, it's you know, we, we haven't really talked much about exercise because I think we take it as a given, don't yeah. we? But that's obviously very, very important for cardiovascular health. Um, but no, it, it's... Um, you know, we're, we're all trying to do the same thing, really. We're trying to kind of, you know, live a good quality, you know, high-functioning life for as long as possible without making it a chore. And I think, I think you know, no one wants to die before their time. They don't. And, and unfortunately, that is happening as we speak. You know, someone has a heart attack every seven minutes, I think, in the UK. And wouldn't it be great if we could just reduce that number just by you know making one or two little changes in our in our lifestyles you know you know eat, eating more nuts eating more fish um exercising a bit more relaxing a bit more reducing stress levels you know is it really that difficult and will it length, lengthen your life well as dean has shown mm. through his work yes it will mm. if you can reverse an actual narrowing within an artery within a year if he can do it you can do it I love getting Dr. Ian Panja onto the podcast. He is so good at communicating quite difficult concepts and very, very good at explaining exactly what the benefits of lifestyle are. To summarize essentially what we talked about, we first defined narrow inflamed arteries and why inflammation is a very important part of the process and how we need to understand what balances inflammation. And just as a side note, there is another podcast on inflammation as a concept with Dr. Jenna Machocki. You should definitely check that out as well. Mediterranean diets that focus on lots of different colored vegetables, plant-focused, dark leafy greens, and quality fats that we get from whole sources, such as extra virgin olive oils, nuts and seeds are fantastic additions to the diet they also contain micronutrient rich foods that have magnesium calcium coenzyme q10 as well as a whole bunch of other phytochemicals that we know are important for protecting your heart the concept of nutrigenetics is changing the expression of your genes with lifestyle, food and your environment. And this gives us some explanation as to why people who lead Mediterranean style lifestyles with low stress and lots of different colored foods have benefits to heart health. Sleep, stress and movement are key features of lifestyle that are heart healthy and in particular the Ornish lifestyle program that both me and Dr. Ian are big fans of I'll put in the show notes so you can check those out on the doctorskitchen.com. I didn't want to go too hard into the evidence behind sugar and its effects but essentially excess sugar in the diet that we don't just get from the granulated white, white stuff but we also get from processed foods, sugary drinks, refined juices and refined carbohydrates are things that we need to minimize in the diet and on balance 
a Western diet has high amounts of sugar. In our toolkit, alongside pharmaceuticals like statins and blood pressure medications, we have diets that are low in sugar and refined carbohydrates, lifestyle practices, nutrigenomics, so changing the expression of your genes using colorful food, as well as stress relieving techniques. These are all things that we have in the locus of our control that can improve the functioning of this vital organ. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please do give us a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast. You can find Dr. A.N. at Dr. A.N. That's D-R-A-Y-A-N.co.uk on his website and on socials. It's Dr. underscore A.N. on Twitter and Dr. A.N. Panja, all one word, on Instagram. Make sure you go check him out. You can check out the show notes on thedoctorskitchen.com and do not forget to pick up a copy of my new book, Eat to Be Illness, which is out on the 21st of March, 2019. If it's already out, make sure you go onto Amazon or all good bookstores and get yourself a copy. There's lots more information about heart health, brain health, inflammation balance, and tons of recipes to help you on your journey toward better living. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.